Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt. I'm here with Pastor Nick Gibson and Dr. Samuel Gregg. Uh, today, we have an interesting podcast on natural law, and um, and and so we have this great guest, uh, Dr. Samuel Gregg. Sam, do you want to give everybody kind of an introduction to who you are and what you do before we jump into it? Sure. So I'm Sam Gregg. Um, my main affiliation is with the American Institute for Economic Research. Uh, but I think for the probably for the purposes of this podcast, um, I'm an affiliate scholar at the Acton Institute. Mm-hmm. And my research is very much in the area of natural law on the one hand, but also political economy and free market economics on the other. So I live to a certain extent in two worlds. Uh, and I've written a lot about these particular subjects. Uh, and one of the things I've always tried to do is to ground these ideas in a type of philosophical framework that theoretically speaking is open to anyone who takes reason seriously. So I worked at Acton for 21 and a half years before moving to my new job, but I still do lots of things with Acton, including Acton University, which is where I give a whole introductory lecture on the subject of natural law and why it is so immediately relevant to pretty much everything that we do. So, um, Sam, can you give us a little history on your faith and confessional background? Like, how did you come to become a Christian and what confessional background in Christianity are you part of and why? Okay, well, I'm a Roman Catholic and I was um, baptized when I was probably about five days old, which is the normal way things are done in the Catholic world. Uh, And I've always taken my faith Uh, Seriously, I was blessed to have um, a family atmosphere where all this was taken very seriously. Uh, And I went to Catholic schools where, for the most part, one heard what was actually um, Catholic teaching, which at the time in the 1970s and 1980s was not something guaranteed in a lot of Catholic schools. It was a very difficult time for the Catholic Church, right? Um, But I suppose for me, in terms of um, Catholicism, I mean, there's obviously many things going on there, but I suppose I take the, in the end, it comes down to, I take the claims of the Catholic Church to be what it says, seriously, I think what it says is about itself is, is true. And I also think that the Catholicism's particular approach to the, the very contested area of faith and reason has, uh, has, has always had an enormous significance for me. And also, I think mm-hmm. I was also very blessed to grow up during the pontificate of John Paul II and Benedict XVI, mm-hmm. who by any standard are intellectual giants, right? And, but who were very good, I think, at explicating the truths of Christianity about showing how these truths were obviously revealed to us. But they also took this subject of natural law very seriously and took reason very seriously. And Of course, as we know, Christians are often described as, well, you people aren't interested in reason. You're not concerned with the life of the mind in that sense, to which my 
response is always, well, you do know that the early pagans mocked the Christians as the, quote, high priests of reason. <laughs> and the, one of the reasons yeah. for that was because right from the very beginning of Christianity, the Christian church took reason deadly seriously. You can see this in Paul when he talks about um, the Greeks being able to know the law that's written on uh, people's hearts. You can see this in the way that Christians uh, took seriously the idea of <clears throat> explicating in rational form what they believed to be the truths of revelation and explaining how all these things related to each other. So that's also been been uh, very important as well. And of course, I mean, all, all yeah. that's significant, but you do need to, on some level, you need to have some sort of personal relationship with Christ. And I'm, I, I obviously have tried to cultivate that as much as I can. I also take, I also say this, I also take a lot of inspiration from the lives of saints. I think that's something that is very much with mm -hmm. me. And when I do my daily prayer reading, the, one of the things that's always there is, a life of one of the saints. And I always find that fascinating because yeah. it's a reminder that we're not alone. There are others who have gone before before us, marked with a sign of faith, as, as we say in, 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 in the Catholic yeah. Church, who have actually lived lives of holiness. And that's something I think any yeah. Christian can aspire to. Yeah, one of the things we, we talk about in the podcast is just reading more Christian biography and people who have been denoted saints are great places to start through the centuries. I think also sometimes people are surprised when they go back and read the church fathers yes. that before the church fathers were mystical, they were very rational. Oh, yeah. the, the apologists right. kind of come first and then you get a deeper mystical tradition, which is a good tradition, but both exist in our tradition really strongly. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Okay, so people well, like um, Maximus the Confessor, all these people um, – so Augustine, mm -hmm. Anselm, um, Ignatius of Antioch, it's all there. It's all there. These guys are not sort right. of um, uh, uh, feelings and emotions. That's not what it's about. Right. Well, and as we as we transition into that discussion, I, I think it, it would be good to start with uh, a lot of the people that listen to this podcast are younger. Uh, I mean, I'm mm -hmm. Gen Z. I grew up in the public school system. I'm, you know, I'm Protestant. So th the conversation around natural law seems kind of foreign to me, uh, and the whole concept of natural law seems a little bit foreign to me because, because I just never heard it talked about really. And so, yeah, Andy, let me even just clear up one thing before that is when we say Christian anthropology, when we say anthropology on this podcast, we don't mean the way Christians look at the fossil record and sociological <laughs> of people in tribal societies throughout the right. world. We mean a, a logos or a logic of the anthropos, yeah. which is man. Mm -hmm. So the Greek word logic or understanding of a reason of and human being. Anthropology just means the logic of the human being or what it means to be a human sure. being. In universities, we think of that as this department that focuses on anth anthropology and ethnology. But within Christian theology, we say anthropology as the logos of the man or what is a human mm -hmm. being. Theologically sure. speaking. So when when Sam says this is a, an anthropology, that's yeah. what he means. He's talking about a Christian anthropology, what we believe right. a human person and is. And so, yeah. So yeah. as we move into this conversation about natural law, I guess I want to just begin with a – I want like a definition or, an, or a brief overview as to what natural law actually is and how, law. how people who, who haven't interacted with this idea should be thinking about it to begin with so, so that they can kind of have a, a base – Sure. So when I think one of the challenges with natural law is that is the expression natural law, mm -hmm. because um, when people hear the phrase natural law, particularly people who are sort of post-Darwinian, we think of natural selection. We think of the laws of nature. We think of 
um, uh, we think of sciences and things like that. Um, and in some cases, it, it's it's almost law of the jungle type of stuff. Mm -hmm. That's what these are some of the phrases that come to mind. But that's not what natural law is. Natural law is nothing more and nothing less than what we would call right reason, recta ratio. And so the 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 nat nature part, natural part of natural law is that um, we are reasonable. We mm -hmm. have this capacity for reason, which makes us different from any other being. And this capacity for reason goes beyond scientific reason and empirical sciences. This type of, this reason is very much capable of knowing things like the, the nature of good and evil and how you realize good and evil and how you can do good and how you can sure. avoid evil. So that's the natural part. The law part is about what is right, hmm. what is right. That, so and this is in the sense that our reason is orientated to knowing what is not just um, empirically correct, but morally correct as well. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the sort of very basic mm -hmm. conception of what natural law is. It's the idea that humans, by virtue of possessing reason, can know certain truths about the moral order um, without the intervention of divine revelation. Mm. Right. Okay. So that's so natural law can operate on its own, so to speak, mm. up to a point. And it's also worth noting that natural law is a way of uh, a, a, is an idea that that you find outside Christianity as well. Right. So the Greeks, mm. people like Plato and Aristotle, yeah. very much believed in this idea of natural law. There's a very strong tradition of um, uh, uh, natural law thinking in mm. Judaism particularly as you get closer and closer mm -hmm. uh, to the beginning of um, the life of Christ. There's also a certain degree of natural law thinking in Islam. And there's also people like the, the, the Roman lawyers and the Roman philosophers and the Stoics. It's clear that they believed in some type of natural law. Even I think C.S. Lewis says that you can find intimations of natural law in Confucianism and things like this. So yeah. that what that mm -hmm. testifies to is the universality of natural law. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing about Christianity is that Christianity has always taken natural law very, very seriously. You can see this within the first century of the Christian church. You see Christian thinkers, what we would call philosophers, mm -hmm. uh, using natural law ideas to unpack things like the meaning of the Decalogue for how people, Christians, are supposed to live their lives. And then, you know, there are different principles of natural law, the most obvious being um, do good, avoid evil. There's also some other things about natural law. Natural law is also very strong on the idea of moral absolutes. There are certain things we may never do. Don't steal, don't kill, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a, dis it's a distinctly non-relativistic mm -hmm. conception yes. of the world. And that's something that is very challenging, of course, for a lot of people today, even some Christians, right, because... We, are, we hear this constant mantra that everything's relative, it's really up to you <laughs> yeah, and your feelings, right. and even conceptions of conscience have become mm. detached from ideas of natural law. Mm. So that's essentially what, what natural law is, and it's something that obviously, I, I think most people tend to associate it with Roman Catholicism because mm. we think of people like Thomas Aquinas and the scholastic mm. tradition, but we should be very aware that there are plenty of Protestant thinkers who have, who engaged in natural law thought um, 
during and after the Reformation and still do today. You can find yes. plenty of Protestant natural law thinkers. And there are, there are okay. Orthodox and, thinkers who talk, take natural law seriously as well. Okay, Sam. So I want, we're, we're going to try to um, vacillate this conversation between like a pretty intelligent one to a like super, super basic mm-hmm. one. So one of the examples you give in your book is – because I, I think on one level, natural law is like this – like highly theoretical people think in like very sophisticated terms, but then it's also like super basic. It's basically like you actually know kind of what's right or wrong. Mm -hmm. Natural law theory is working that out, but it starts with this like just realization that the natural law is sort of written on your heart, that there's a capacity for human conscience and conscience is somehow connected to your reason and its function. And that you as a functional being simply do know some things are right and something's wrong. The example you give in your book in the first couple of pages on natural law is the golden rule. Mm-hmm. That even though Jesus gives it in the Bible, so it's scriptural revelation, it's also sort of like, well, oh yeah, I mean, if you don't do that, you know you're not treating other people justly. Right? Yes. So that's like a, like do it to others as you would have them do to you. That's like a very simple natural law principle, right? So can I can yeah, I clarify? That's right. that's a, just sure. you're you're saying that that p- part of this natural law is that there, there is just this something inside all of us that just kind of fundamentally understands the these the the, the nature of, of good and evil in some capacity. Is that kind of what you're saying, Nick? Or or yes. Sam? Yeah. Yes. No. That's that's so. Natural law involves this innate capacity through reason that we can know these moral truths. That there's never an occasion when it's appropriate to steal. There's never an occasion when murder is good hmm. um it's so these are sort of like what what philosophers would call self-evident claims hmm. that any person in any culture in any civilization will know will simply know because it's literally written into our reason itself hmm. so um and that that means of course that um we're not we're, that we're not off the hook for our actions, right? Wherever we are and whatever we do, mm. it's no, we can basically say that. So yes, the, the law of the land may say this, you are allowed to do that, but the natural law may tell you actually, no, you can't do that. That's, mm. that's still wrong. It doesn't matter what the law of the land says about certain things. So that innate, that innateness of natural law, which I think gets to the, this, the word of the word, the use of the word nat- natural, is extremely important in understanding that this is truly a universal ethics. So, Sam, for people like just in terms of lay terms who aren't familiar with the language of this realm of philosophy, what, how would we then think of? Because I think you, I think you're using the word reason in, a, in a, with an expansive definition, mm-hmm. which it sounds like it would take in what we call normally call the human conscience. That's what I was. Is that yeah. right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, so think about it this way. Um, there's basically two levels. One is conscience, and conscience is the practical working out of what we are going to choose and do in light of this deeper knowledge that's written into our reason itself. So conscience is where we, we engage in reflection about what is the good and right and just thing to do, mm-hmm. And, but that in turn rests upon the idea that we can, we already know the principles that we should be bringing to this particular type of reflection. In fact, the, the sort of Greek fathers use phrases like synderesis to describe the sort of deeper inner knowledge that makes us 
are capable of engaging in moral judgment as expressed in this realm of conscience. What does synderesis yeah. mean? I'm not familiar so with that. Synderesis is the idea that that there's this deep knowledge of good and evil that none of us can escape and which make us uh, either innocent or guilty uh, in terms of what we do. So this is why, for example, you can say that someone like a Stalin or a Hitler yeah, yeah. probably believed in all good conscience that what they were doing was a good thing, right? But synderesis is just this idea that there's this deeper knowledge that is is on the, to, the Christian phrase would be on their heart or a philosophical expression would be in their reason itself that means that they are guilty for of their actions because we all know that it's always wrong to do certain things. And so this is important because it means that conscience can't become a way of just rationalizing whatever it is we just happen to want to do. So so th- this is to that like there's a kind of intuitive moral knowledge that you can you can always you can like rationalize over and over time you'll even convince yourself so in your yeah. mind you really think you're doing a good thing but there is this sort of like innate knowledge with that it sounds like what that also means is that it's not only not relativist but it's also not like developmentalist in the sense that like every intuitional moral intuition that i have came just from my upbringing in my culture right. And that it's in that sense a social and familial construct. Right. What you're saying is the Christian view of the human, human person that holds to natural law says, no, the fact that you're an intersubjective being, like you know that you're a person and you look out and you see these other persons and you realize that they're kind of persons the same way you're a person, that in and of itself allows you to engage with morality because you know there's some things you don't want done to you as a person. And you can in- inherently then know that you don't, and that's a, that that is an emergent property from intelligence or capacity to be intersubjective to know that there's other persons besides just you. In that sense, it's very I, Nick, and that human beings need to recognize. That. I, I think I, I yes. get I get where you're coming from, but I, I okay, I'm growing up in this generation that is, I mean, a lot of my generation is full on Marxist and has different I- ideas of what a human person actually is. And are totally okay with dehumanizing somebody if it means that they can get ahead or they can, they can, you know, so, so obviously you guys are, you coming from a different generation and, and a little bit older than I am. And so when you say this stuff, I'm like, okay, I can, I like, I understand it conceptually, but I'm not seeing yeah. this play out in my generation. Uh, it practically, I mean, this is one of the things that I've heard over and over Acton though. And Michael Massimilla does this, Michael and, and Greg or Sam teach a lot of these similar classes. It's that a lot of this is rooted in what they call intersubjectivity. Hmm. So like Marxism is capable of taking another person and turning them into an abstraction. And by making that other person an abstraction, they can then become yeah. an object and then you can do what you right. want with that object. So like one of the things that are that younger generations, they want to believe that they're really relational and communitarian, but the community can be a group of persons you treat like persons, or it can become this like abstract object that you think about morally yourself and you feel good about how you're relating to it. But you can really dehumanize the actual persons in the community when the community becomes an abstraction. That's why Chesterton said, he's like, he's like, Jesus said, love your neighbor. And I would never trust a man that says love humanity. (laughs) Yeah. So, so what do you say? Yeah. Because humanity becomes an abstraction. They're not the individual human actual person who is your neighbor. Now, now, so Sam, do you think that those people, these younger generations are 
suppressing some this deep down uh, understand they're suppressing something that's deeply rooted in them in natural in the natural law that people Well what I would say is that when you dig down very few people live their lives in a relativistic way hmm. right on a practical yeah. level so you can say oh yeah. yeah I think anyone should be able to do whatever they want but you don't raise your children that way <laughs> you don't treat your spouse that way you don't treat your business partners that way. Um, uh, and, and you get really mad if other people treat you that way. Yeah, that's right. So the notion, so, so, and you, you become very aware when someone treats you unjustly and you, and you know it's unjust, suddenly the relativism disappears very quickly, right? So, 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 and that I think reflects the fact that there is this innate dimension to natural law it is simply part of who we are. And we can try and suppress it. And believe you me, lots of people try and suppress it mm -hmm. because it gets in the way, right, of me just having to want to treat other people as objects mm -hmm. or to engage in sort of utilitarian rationalizations of things. Believe you me, it gets in the way of people getting to do whatever they happen to want to do. But the fact, the fact that you can never really escape this nagging sense that there's something fundamentally wrong with what you just chose, that I think is, is, is telling us something about the fact that we are, because we're human, because we have reason, because we can know certain truths by virtue of the fact that we're human and the fact that we have reason, that I think testifies to the reality hmm of natural law. It's not an abstract thing. It's part of who we are. It's part of our very, our very nature itself. Yeah. That's, I think that's interesting. Yeah. Cause I, I've been thinking, do you think, um, so at, at what point, cause obviously as a Protestant, I'm like, okay, so at what point is, is reason corrupt too, too much corrupted by sin nature that like sure. our depravity and at, at where do you draw those lines i guess my my question my first question would be like where, where do the catholics yeah. draw that line or is there a black and white uh answer to yeah. that so okay i want to let me clarify something before you answer that um sam mm -hmm. so within the christian tradition fallibility can mean two things Right. And, and they're also intertwined. One is the limitation of the human person. Right. We're not omniscient like God. We don't know everything. And also the corruption of the human person, morally right. speaking. Right. And those those two can be connected to one another. Right. But, so, but they're also different. Those are right. Because mm -hmm. limited right. knowledge is not the same thing as um, um, being sinful. But oh. our limited right. knowledge reflects the fact that we're not God. Oh. <laughs> right? And therefore, we often do sin because we so. So I think that that's an important thing to keep in mind. So but I would basically put it in the in the Catholic world. Um, yes, there is obvious recognition that that our reason is affected by the fall, that it's also affected by the fact that we're not we're not God. So the sin part and the fallibility part are there. Uh, Catholicism also holds that um, it's entirely possible for people to make serious errors when they're reasoning their way through any number of questions. Um, at the same time, um, Catholicism also says that uh, we have free will, that we can make free choices, that at particular points in time, when we're make, doing engaging in human actions, mm. there is a point where the the road we t we take is very much one of what we precisely choose at that particular point 
in time. So Catholicism has a pretty robust conception of free choice and free will. Mm -hmm. Now that makes it a little different, I think, from um, some other forms of Christianity. And but I think it's really, I mean, so a, a Catholic would not say they hold to total depravity. They would not say that. What they would say is that we are weak, we are sinful, we make mistakes, we're fallible. Um, but nonetheless, we can still make free choices. And they point to Catholicism also often points to the example of martyrs, right? So martyrs, that's a, martyrdom is a very clear case of where someone makes a radical choice for the good, mm -hmm. or in that case for Christ, over and against the alternatives. Mm -hmm. If you go back to the um, if you go back to the Reformation period, you'll find that there were lots of different arguments about this relationship between reason and the will, and more particularly how free the will actually was. But I don't think yeah. any Protestant thinker denies that there is a will and that we are in some degree responsible right. for our choices. I don't think any Protestant thinker would say right. that. No, yeah. I, I, very, I mean, very few if if so. Right. Yeah, they'd be a, a tiny group of hyper-Calvinists. <laughs> okay, before we get into any of the Reformation stuff, which could be interesting relative to Protestantism, let's start Let's start with Aquinas. Mm -hmm. As I mean, obviously we could go back to Augustine, but Aquinas is kind of like the big name, the biggest name maybe in natural law thinking. Um, could you start a little bit with like, kind of what he did to it to make this it this fundamentally Christian thing that then flowed forward mm -hmm. into because in so for so people who are ignorant of church history, Aquinas is 13th mm -hmm. century. Is that That's correct? Right. And so that precedes the Reformation by a couple hundred mm -hmm. years. And so Aquinas's writings was among some of the first writings printed when we had a printing press. And it was very widely read. His his theological works were like the theological works um, of much of Christendom, including all the people who became leaders in the Reformation. And so his like a, a, like Thomistic, what we call it, theology was what everybody was either agreeing with or responding to in almost anything that was going on in the Reformation period and and through that time period. So, like, can you help us understand, like, not necessarily Aquinas broadly, but just like rel particularly relative to natural law, mm. understanding like what's right and wrong so that we can take that into economics and government and other areas of our so lives. So Aquinas, like a lot of other thinkers, when he was writing, I mean, he wrote something like 5 million words <laughs> in his lifetime, yeah. right? And he died, I think, when he was only in his early 50s. Wow. But well, the thing about Aquinas is that, um, like a lot of other people, he was confronting theological and philosophical problems of the time. Hmm. Now, one of the challenges facing Christendom at that point was essentially a type of rediscovery of Greek thinkers, people like Aristotle and others, and reading the, Aristotle's politics and reading Plato's Republic, etc. And all these texts had a tremendous emphasis upon reason, Aristotle. There's a reason why Aristotle was pretty much regarded as the sort of the progenitor of natural law thinking. But of course, these guys were pagans, right? So these guys are pagans. Yeah. And so their conception of the um, transcendent and understanding of the nature of God was clearly not Christian, um, although people like Augustine said that Plato was a sort of uh, proto-Christian, et cetera, et cetera, because they didn't. But it's very clear that both Aristotle and Plato, they didn't buy into the pagan mythologies. They didn't. They clearly did not buy into this stuff. They, they were convinced yeah, there was something, but they were convinced there was something at the beginning of time from which everything else began. Yeah, one thing that's really interesting is how many church fathers sort of talk like Plato and Aristotle and some of those thinkers are kind of like anonymous Christians or like because they were before Jesus, mm -hmm. 
they were like they they were on to the thing. They were essentially on their team. Right. The, the church fathers were like Plato. Plato is more like us than you guys. Absolutely, and, absolutely. They didn't hesitate to quote these guys when they were debating pagan yeah. philosophers. But so here's the thing about so Aris, so Aquinas is really trying to deal with two problems. One is the problem of okay, does this turn Christianity? This encounter with Aristotle. We have to be clear that this is not us embracing rationalism. Right. So, so the sort of absolutization of reason. So that's one problem he's trying right. to deal with. Um, another problem is obviously there are truths that are contained in people like Aristotle, as and as you mentioned, the Greek church fathers clearly recognized this. But and this is if this is true, then how do we relate this to revelation? How do we relate this to what uh-huh. has come to us through scripture, tradition, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? Uh-huh. And so, yeah. so, and that was a really important discover, dis- discussion to have because if that discussion had gone wrong, it could have ended up with some very serious problems in Christianity, which, uh, which Islam ended up experiencing for, for many of the same yeah. reasons, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Let me, I want to jump in just quick illustration. Mm-hmm. If you go to Rome and you go into the Vatican Museum, there's this very famous painting of Plato and Aristotle walking next to each other where, where Plato is gesturing up yeah, and Aristotle yeah, is gesturing yeah. down towards the earth. That's in the Vatican, that painting, right. like that respect for these, these Greek writers and this learning. Also, as you go through the Roman museum, there's this one place where there's this painting on the ceiling <clears throat> and it's Aquinas and he's kneeling before a throne. And at his feet, at Aquinas's feet, is this like Greek guy in a toga. And under the Greek guy, it says Aristoteles. And above the woman sitting on the throne, it says Scriptura. And so there's this like, there's this painting in the Vatican Museum of Aquinas introducing the philosophy of Aristotle to Lady Scripture. But Lady Scripture is on the throne. She is the queen. And Aristotle is this like, he almost looks like a beggar at the feet of the thing. But he, she's inter- so. And Aquinas is in making the introduction. He's bringing the two together. Lady Scripture is on the throne, but Aristotle is being introduced to her so that they can work together or be properly properly integrated. Yes, because obviously the encounter with Aristotle raised all sorts of issues about the relationship of reason to the truths of revelation. Right. It also raised questions yeah. about the nature of God. In the sense of, okay, what is the nature of God? Is God just purely pure love? But is there another dimension to God, which um, uh, the Greeks called logos, which means divine reason, right? So Aquinas was working through all these particular theological questions on one level, but he was also trying to apply these insights of this integration of Christian thought with natural law thinking. He was trying to apply it to very practical questions like, the nature of government or um, property or exchanges between people, economic exchanges between people. In fact, the second treatise of his Summa Theologiae was basically um, him working out all these questions and applying them to what we would call today politics, economics, and law. Mm. Okay. so I- Yeah. And isn't there a pretty good section on psychology, like what the human mind is made of, of its different like how it takes in things through the senses, sure. its differentiation, all that. I've been, I was actually very surprised to read how much philosophy of psychology is in Aquinas too. Yes, and I mean, the thing about Aquinas is that there's very little he didn't talk about. <laughs> so yeah. things like how we know what we know, questions like that you just pointed out, to questions yeah. like what is the nature of money, 
and what sort, what function does it does, what function does yeah. it play in political and economic life, as well as how does uh, how does the right use of things like this affect our salvation? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I would say for Protestants who haven't had the chance to study church history very much, um, I don't know that there's anybody in church history that spoke about as many things as well as Aquinas. And he also integrated all the. They were also related to each other, so it wasn't like he was. These, these these things were rigidly separated from each other. It was all integrated, right? And that's, right. that's Which is really kind of, important. Yeah, and so church history wise, it's kind of the opposite of Luther. Like Martin Luther wrote as many words or more words. Luther wrote like a book a day for a while, but they were all about the same thing, right? Luther was like was like prophetically like trying to hammer on something. Aquinas was like literally trying to bring the universe together. And though it's a, it's a similar amount of words, it's a totally different project. And so Aquinas like stands completely unique, as far as I can tell in the history of the church, as a comprehensive theologian, which before the printing press seems astounding. Indeed. And in fact, his Summa Theologiae was written for ordinary people. It wasn't written for other scholars. People forget this. It was basically written for people who were studying to become clergy or people who just happen to be interested in, in sort of a rational defense and articulation of the Christian faith. And, yeah. you know, so, and of course, he never really finished his work because he wanted it to be all comprehensive. Mm -hmm. And that, yeah. I think, is the, that is, that is the, the strength of his work in that it's, it, he does show how things like the, what you understand to be the nature of God has implications for things that you think are, might be quite marginal in your own life. So, okay, I want to move into kind of how natural law relates to what we hear a lot among younger activists is like, quote unquote, human rights. Um, mm -hmm. I, you hear, I mean, I, I see a lot of younger progressives and liberals saying things like universal health care is a human right. Abortion is a human right. There's all this talk about what is a human right. And so my question to you is, how does natural law relate to the concept of human rights? Um, and then does thinking about human rights come from, from natural law? I think mm -hmm. that this is, it. so yeah, go, go, go from there and then maybe we'll dissect that a little bit more. So historically speaking, I think it's fair to say that the very idea of human rights is very difficult to just to break away from its natural law origins. You can find intimations of this in, uh, Thomas Aquinas. In fact, some people would say that the first sort of robust conception of human rights is to be found in Thomas Aquinas. You can find, you can definitely find an human rights thinking in the, in the writings of medieval canon lawyers. Hmm. You can also find a fair amount of human rights language and concepts used by Spanish scholastic thinkers as they tried to work out questions like, so these people in the new world that we've discovered, what are our obligations to them? What, what rights do they enjoy, even though we know that they're not Christians. So that's, the, and if you go through the 17th century, the 18th century, the very language of rights was so intimately tied up with the idea of natural law that separating them would have seemed, seemed completely ridiculous right. to most people at the time. Now, that's not the case today. Human rights op operate in many respects in uh, a, a sort of positivistic way. In the, and by that, I mean they're simply sort of declared that this is a right and 
the philosophical reason why it is a right and why something else is not a right is usually not mm -hmm. explicated in these types of documents. Mm -hmm. But if you look at natural law thinkers of the, in the even even the twentieth century, see so people like Jacques Maritain, um, who was one of the um, influences on the Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, or the person who just supervised my doctorate, John Finnis, who wrote a book called Natural Law and Natural Rights. <laughs> and his, his whole argument is that natural rights are derived from the goods that our, our reason reveals to us as being good in themselves. So we have a right to religious liberty because we have the capacity to explore and know and understand the truth about the transcendent, and we can't do that unless we are free to do so. Mm -hmm. So, so mm -hmm. the thing about natural law is it grounds human rights in particular and very explicit conceptions of the good. Mm -hmm. That is not what you find in a lot of contemporary human rights discussion. What mm -hmm. you typically find is the government says it is a right, so therefore it is a right, or or a majority of people happen to believe that X is a right, therefore it is a right. Hmm. Of course, natural law says nat rights have nothing to do with majority opinion. They have nothing to do with right. what transitory governments might think about particular things at point in time. Natural law yeah. says that human rights are universally known. They are um, something be precisely because they are grounded in natural law itself. Now, here's the other thing. That also means that there's not an inexhaustible list of natural rights. Hmm. It also means mm -hmm. that. It also puts limits and parameters hmm. around what is a right and what is not. So, uh, yeah, I think it's, I want to make sure it's really clear to our listeners that the, what a right is, is literally the opposite of that which is established by authority, uh, either tyrannical or democratic. The, the very nature of a natural right is if everybody is against you, you they still owe it to you. Absolutely. You still have it. Exactly. It's not up for debate. Right. It's not up. Uh, it's not under anybody's particular authority, and it's not up for voting. And so, if something is voted to become a right, that's literally the opposite of what a right means. I was I gave a lecture to some students recently where we were talking about gender, mm. and I said the etymology of the word gender from genos in Greek literally means of a particular begotten kind mm. that is the kind of the thing it was made. The word gender literally means the unchangeable nature of the thing itself in its inherent classification, which is literally the opposite thing exactly of how the word gender is being used as right. a intersubjective thing. Yeah, and so even, right is like this too. Right is like right means the thing you have in and of yourself by the nature of the thing itself so and good, not a, because of it. A very good example of this would be something like if someone said to you, we have a right to torture people, then the natural law person would say, no, there is no such thing as a right to torture people. It doesn't matter if a government or the majority of people at a particular point in time say, oh, no, it's okay. We can torture people. We have a right to do so. The natural law response would be, no, I don't care how many people you have voting for you, what the law says. There's no such thing as a right to torture. And what there is, however, is a right not to be tortured. Hmm. Can I? OK, mm -hmm. let me ask one thing, though, because I, I I'm still not fully on board with this idea of natural law, mostly because I can't get past the fact that like. Okay, if somebody believes in the human right to torture somebody else, which which that historically has happened in the 20th century, it happened all the sure, time. Absolutely. Um, th there's some there's some sense to that. 
the idea that it seems to me like if you if you believe that human beings have the capacity to reason to some sort of limit that then can be corrupted through through uh, mm-hmm. sin. What what are, like in First Timothy it talks uh, is it First Timothy or maybe Second Timothy First Timothy four it talks about people's consciences being seared, and so what what does that mean? Because I look at I, I look at people and I'm like, at what point do they actually believe that what they're doing is actually truly deeply morally good, even though it's not? Like I I don't I I know people and I've I've seen I mean we've seen this historically where I'm like I don't know if do we do we really think Hitler had something deep down inside of him that that could have told him no 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 this is this is this is wrong or was his conscious conscience seared and his capacity for reasoning and understanding uh, what was actually true and good was out the door at some point yeah so i mean okay. yeah natural law has some pretty good responses to that one is for example that uh, the fact of human sin does can dull our consciences Another thing it often talks about is the capacity for the passions, our passions to override our reason. This happens all the time, right? Um, we can also use our reason to rationalize all sorts of things that we know are wrong. Hmm. And it's also possible for our conscience to become dulled by the fact that we continue to do bad things. So if you are um, a habitual torturer, right? sure. or you, you, to give you an example, after a while, your sense of the wrongness of sure. what you're yeah. doing is yeah. bound to become um, uh, dulled by the fact that you've become habituated to doing something that's very, very wrong. Mm-hmm. But even then, I would argue the torturer does know at some level that what they're doing is, mm-hmm. is wrong. And in fact, you mentioned um, Hitler at, at, at different points in the Second World War, he would obliquely say things like, well, I've had to learn to basically crush my these sort of inner sentiments telling me that, I mean, he didn't quite say it like this, but basically he was saying I had to crush these sentiments yeah. telling me that certain things were always wrong. And do you think he crushed them all the time? Now, that doesn't invalidate natural law. All it does is say that it's very possible for people to ignore it and suppress the urgings of conscience. Okay. Yeah, you can rationalize the bad thing you're doing, but then there's a second rationalization to rationalize why you shouldn't listen to your conscience, which is in some ways the demonic gift that Nietzsche gave to Hitler by by giving him a rationalization for not listening to the natural law speaking inside of him through his conscience. He had not just the rationalization to kill Jews and start war. He had a second, more important rationalization that I don't have to listen to my conscience because that's just romantic sentiment. Now, was there a point and by transcending that I become more godly? Was there a point at which is there a point at which when somebody does that, it, it, they're too far gone? I mean, that's my question. It's like, can yeah, you? Yeah, well, you know, who was really interesting on this is uh, John Henry Newman. Hmm. He wrote a lot about conscience, right? And um, he he pointed out that um, you can get to the point where you essentially start ignoring the promptings of what you know to be true. Um, so he's often talked about, right, as the person who was the, the great scholar of conscience because he, he wrote about conscience quite seriously for long periods of time. But he was pointing out that it's entirely possible for people to suppress, dull, nullify 
the promptings of their conscience. So they actually start to believe they're doing the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, okay. So I want to move in. I have a question written down here about um, an article that you wrote about uh, how young Americans are increasingly preferring socialism rather than capitalism. Um, and I'm, I guess my, my question to you is, what I guess, why do you think that's happening? So do you want to give people kind of the premise of that article and, and what you're saying? Because I think it kind of connects to some of these ideas that we've been talking about, about human law, uh, uh, or sorry, natural law, human rights, um, and things like that. So do you want to kind of break that down a little bit, and then we can get into that a little bit more? So, so natural law has a lot to say about economics, right? Mm-hmm. So it has a lot to say about property, has a lot to say about the modes of justice, commutative justice, distributive justice, legal justice. It has a lot to say about justice in exchange. It has a lot to say about what government should and should not do when it comes to not just um, the legal system and and the protecting rights and things like that, but also how it acts or should not act in the context of economic relations. Mm -hmm. So that article that I wrote about this drift of many Americans, young Americans towards some type of um, socialism, one of the things I, I point out is that when the people use the phrase socialism, particularly some of the group that I'm talking about here, mm-hmm. they don't necessarily mean a command economy. That's okay. not necessarily what they're talking about. What they're really talking about, I think, in many cases, is they want to see more justice mm-hmm. in economic relations. And they they would say that, they would say, well, markets and capitalism are not delivering on justice. Now, what they mean by justice is often very vague um, because they're not often making the various distinctions that I think need to be made in this regard. But that's, I think, more or less what they're talking about. They're talking in some respects about equality of outcomes, right? So everyone ends up with more or less what they need. They are they're talking about what they see as problems with vast disparities of wealth, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. So, so that's what I think is going on there. Uh, and I think natural law is very good in terms of helping people to clarify what they mean by different expressions, mm-hmm. uh, what they think, what, what should be and should not be the role of the state in dealing with questions of justice in the economy. Uh, but I'm afraid I have to say that when, when you look at some of the, the arguments that you hear in the, the type of circles that you're talking about, they're not particularly well thought out. I, yeah. And I think it's because there isn't this type of framework that something like natural law can help hmm. so that, yes, obviously, we should be concerned about questions of justice. But justice isn't what whatever you want it to be. Justice isn't um, whatever people happen to feel at one point in time. Natural law gives us very clear parameters for thinking about things like what justice looks like in economic life. And that reflects in things like how it understands property and property rights, what it mean, how it understands things like the working of prices, what a market actually constitutes, but also the fact that if we're going to flourish as human beings, we need to make free choices. And that includes an in economic life as well. Uh, I, I have, so how do you convince people that there is some sort of natural law? Uh, like I, I can imagine having this type of conversation with somebody, a friend of mine or something like that. And 
I mean, I've had these conversations with more left-leaning liberal progressives and saying, well, there is some, there's got to be some sort of fundamental truth that we kind of build our, our ideas upon. And they kind of see that as, uh, they don't see that as much of a virtue as, as they do as I'm just stuck in this ideological prison that, mm-hmm. that is natural law or whatever we want to call it. And so how do you, how do you have those? I mean, I, this might be, I don't know if this makes sense, but how do you have those well, conversations? We've, we've, we've mentioned one is, of course, what we talked about before. No one actually lives their lives in a highly sure. relativistic fashion. Sure. Right? So if you push people and say, okay, would you treat your parents like that? Mm-hmm. Would you treat other people? Oh, no, no. Well, but if you are really a relativist, mm-hmm. if you really don't believe that you can know truth, then why not? In other words, they don't have a principle. They can't articulate a principled reason as to why they shouldn't do certain things that are self-evidently true. So that's one thing. The second thing is to point out to them: that the moment you abandon some type of natural law framework, then then justice itself no longer has any concrete content beyond whatever people happen to want to put into that content. And that could be done by a dictator, it could be done by a majority of the people or whatever it happens to be. And that opens the road to tyranny, mm-hmm. right? So if you, here's the irony. People often see truth claims as these highly oppressive things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would argue, and natural law more or less says, that without truth claims, the, the road to tyranny is opened up very quickly. Mm -hmm. Because if there's no way of having a reasonable conversation about things anymore, if we can't know that certain things are always evil and certain things are always good, if we can't say there are principled principled limits upon what the state may or may not do, then we're in a Nietzschean world. Mm -hmm. And it's all about who is the strongest person. Mm -hmm. And so I've found that by asking asking some of those questions, so do you really live your life as as if you're a complete hedonist? Mm -hmm. Most people don't. But then to sort of unpack what the logic of their position would mean for things that they say they care about. Because if they really believe in care about justice, I care about justice. But you really can't care about justice unless you're willing to put some type of universal content to it, which is always binding. And if you're a relativist, you can't do that. So I think it's it's really a question of just point asking questions to show them where the logic of what they're presuming leads, but also to show the gap between reality on the one hand mm-hmm. and this type of um, the type of philosophical positions that they're, they're, they say that they more or less adhere to. Mm-hmm. Sam, do you think that so one of the, one of the objections could be that progressives do believe in the natural law? For, for example, I've heard some people say that like. Um, that John Rawls experiment, mental experiment is a natural law experiment that like for people who don't know what that is, it's kind of like if before you were born into a system, so you're like everybody's pre-birth, you're going to be born into an economic and social system. You have no idea where you're going to be born into it. You could be a poor black child in Mississippi. You could be like the richest person in New York who's, you know, Donald Trump's dad or something like that. Right. And you don't know where you'll be born. What kind of system would you want set up? If you didn't know what you'd be born into and Rawls seems to be arguing implicitly that a lot of our views of natural law, like what really is just is partly um, is partly contaminated by our own privileges and systems because we're already mm-hmm. in them. Right. And so he might say, no, I'm the one doing natural law thinking that if we were to think about this, 
from the golden rule perspective, before we entered the system, what system would we want? What would be the most just? Mm -hmm. That is most golden rule-ish. So therefore, progressivism, if it's the answer to that question, is the most natural law system. That is some kind of like European style socialized economy where to, to quote the Old Testament, the, those who have little don't have too little and those who have much don't have too much. But of course, two, two, zero, zero, two, oh, oh, means different things to different people, right? Yeah. So there's a lot that could be said about that. One is that um, Rawls is doing what a lot of natural law thinkers do, which is to try and find universal rules that are applicable in all societies if you're serious about justice. So he's, he's, he's dealing with the fact that there is radical disagreement about these sorts of issues, and he's trying to come up with a framework for thinking through and arriving at principles that are universally true in all times and places. So to that extent, he's concerned with some of the same things that natural law thinkers are concerned with. But there's also other problems. One, there are some problems, though, with Rawls. One is that he says in many places that he's trying to get away from a utilitarian explanation of ethics, right? So that's a sort of maximization of pleasure, minimization of pain, that type of ethic. He says that's what he's trying to get away from. But when you look at the way he constructs his ethical theory, if you look at the way he talks about the, the veil of ignorance, which is really what you're talking about, Nick, this veil of ignorance that is there that we, we can't see behind, um, he uses a lot of utilitarian language and concepts, mm. right? So he himself can't actually get away from these sorts of things. But also he's assuming that the person behind the veil can't has nothing nothing already part of who they are in terms of the, because he's basically denying that reason itself has these certain capacities for knowing truth that once they enter into a culture yes you'll be influenced by that culture but you'll nonetheless be able to make critical distinctions and engage in critical reflection upon the justices and injustices that reflect that particular political system. The other thing which I think he, he ignores is that despite the fact of cultural difference, despite the, the fact of immense religious differences, despite different historical periods, it's actually remarkable just how much societies agree upon despite all those very obvious differences. No society has ever said murder is a good thing. No society has ever said theft is, is it can be great in some circumstances. You don't, you don't find those sorts of conclusions, which tells you that despite all these cultural, political, religious, and historical differences, basic knowledge of these self-evident truths about good and evil is existent, pre-exists all these cultures, which tells us that roles by trying to pretend that this human being behind the veil of ignorance is sort of a blank slate, which is more or less, I think, what he come, what he says. It's simply not true. So, if you're going to be constructing a political theory, let alone an e ethical theory, you have to have some sort of conception of what's true about the human person and what's not. And he basically avoids that question, right? So, so to that extent, he doesn't. He's not a natural law thinker. He's not taking natural law claims seriously.
He's taking what you might call public reason seriously. He wants to be able to reason together about how we how we do justice and how we avoid evil. But he basically pushes natural law claims about the person out of the picture. And in fact, in later works, he tried to stigmatize those claims as, well, that's what Catholics think. This is a specific Catholic thing. Oh, I thought, okay. Uh <clears throat> I guess I want to I want to talk a little bit more about the I, I know. So you kind of talked about how we decide the what is and isn't a human right. But I think um, can you break that down a little bit more? Because I don't know if I fully fully got so so because I'm here like I hear this constantly the, the stuff about universal health care and 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 that kind of stuff. So what where can you use universal health care as an example? What, sure, I can do that. Yes, yeah, yes, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I actually wrote a long article about this um, a few years ago. So we hear this language of rights applied to all sorts of topics, mm -hmm. ranging from. Um, things like right to life, right mm -hmm. to religious liberty, right. right to association, right to free speech. Um, but in more recent decades, or maybe over the past 100 years, the language of rights has expanded rapidly mm -hmm. to embrace all sorts of things that um, were not thought about before because the prospects of things like, say, universal health care didn't exist yeah. 100, yeah. 150 years ago. Right. So the question then becomes, and let's use health care as an example, is it possible to say that people have a right to health care? Hmm. Well, um, this is where the, the language of rights gets, you have to be very careful about how you're using this type of right, this type of language. You might be able to say, look, I have a, a right to have my health respected in the sense of people shouldn't be able to randomly kill me or wound me or hurt me. So that's one thing. That's very different from saying, though, I have a right to 24-7 health care for the rest of my life, guaranteed by the state, and the state will do all this, spend all this money and resources on fulfilling my right to basically not get sick and to sort of live, almost live forever in some respects, right? So, so we, that's clearly problematic. So what the, something like a, a, the language of rights in healthcare tells us is that clearly there are certain things we want to guarantee as a sort of minimum recognition that our bodily integrity and our bodily health is something that we want to try and preserve and protect as much as we can vis-a-vis -vis the, uh, the lives and health of other mm -hmm. people. But that doesn't tell you. So just to say that is one thing. But to say that that translates into German-style social welfare or something very different, that's not at all clear, mm -hmm. right? So this is where I think we start to come up against the limitations of the language of rights, because one of the unfortunate things that's happened as a result of the language of rights getting cut off from its moorings in natural law is that it's crowded out moral discourse about all sorts of very complicated subjects. So something like healthcare, that's not just a, 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 a political issue. There's an economic issue, right? Because there's scarce resources, and that applies just as much in healthcare as it does to any other aspect of life. Um, so when we start to think about it that way, you start to realize, well, at some point, 
We need people who are going to make prudent decisions that try and respect as much as possible people's right to bodily integrity to a certain minimal degree of health, along with these sort of political and economic realities. So this is why I think natural law is, is very good in terms of explaining what you have a right not done to you. So you have, you, you have a right not to be killed, not to be, have your things stolen, et cetera, et cetera. When it comes to translating rights into positive things, like whether it's healthcare uh, or education, education is another one that we often talk about in this regard. When it comes to these sort of positive things that flow out of rights, then you start to realize, okay, well, this is where we enter into realms of prudent policymaking. And natural law will not tell you that German-style social welfare systems are inherently better or worse than, say, what exists in the United States today. All that natural law will tell you is that you do need some sort of minimal standard that everyone uh, enjoys some sort of minimal standard of health care. It won't tell you how you end up delivering that because that's when you get into the realms of politics and economics. And right is a way of sort of um, putting a, a coherent structure around that discussion, but it doesn't necessarily lead you to this particular conclusion rather than another particular conclusion. Okay. Can I try? I want to see if I understand what you're saying, Sam. So it sounds like what you're saying is, is that natural law relative to a provided right like healthcare isn't necessarily what economists sometimes call laissez-faire or whatever happens, happens, so long as it's Mm -hmm. free. You can imagine a situation in which we would have a positive obligation towards the healthcare of others, given certain prudential questions like, like if we had, for example, unlimited energy resources. And just unlimited resources altogether, right? Then that's a different story. Unlimited resources, then maybe we would have an obligation under natural law to provide some level of healthcare, right? But what you're saying is, is that um, the idea, just simply the idea that everybody deserves something to be done to them because they wish it does not substantiate a right. That, that like the demand for equity, for example, doesn't substantiate a right. But you, what you're not saying, because one of the things I think Christians struggle with is there are certain places in the Bible where certain levels of success or resources obligate us to other people. So there's a sense, like, for example, in the Proverbs that there's an obligation of the rich to the poor somehow. And that really does exist. Yep. And therefore, people would say, therefore, right, if a country is rich enough, it has some obligation to its poor, let's say. Do you object? Would you say the natural law would object to that kind of thinking, or are you just like that's just really that can just be really sloppy thinking? No, I think that natural law would say that yes, you, we obviously do have obligations to those who are less well off. So if you are wealthy uh, uh, relative to other people, then you have some concrete obligations to those other people. Um, Aquinas talks about this in his treatment of private property. He says a lot about the, what, what are the rights associated with property, but also the duties and responsibilities that are associated with that. And he draws there upon Aristotle, but he also draws upon scripture as well. And in fact, some of the things that you're precisely talking about. But what it won't do is tell you, and that's why you need a, um, a very big welfare state. Right. What it will tell you is that you have obligate people who are wealthy have obligations to other people who are less wealthy. 
How you realize those obligations depends a lot upon your responsibilities, your pre-existing duties, um, what your particular vocation is in life, et cetera, et cetera. So it doesn't Human necessarily what, – what's that? Human proneness to corruption in systems. Yeah, it will tell you all yeah. those sorts of things. So what it means is that you can end up with, say, wealthy people fulfilling their obligations to those who are less materially well off in a variety of very, very different ways. So, for example, the very wealthy businessman who's very successful, um, what he or she does is – more or less, generally speaking, reinvest their profits back into the business. The business grows, more people are employed, more people receive goods and services, et cetera, et cetera. So, so in other words, natural law would say that the obligations that we have, the concrete obligations that we have to the poor, do not in every single instance turn into a big government program. In fact, natural law would say there's a whole range of other things that should be done first or tried first before you even start thinking about whether this becomes um, something that the political order needs to take on as its responsibility. Can I say one okay, thing? The reason can, why can I, natural law would do that is because of its view of the human person. Absolutely, because we need to make free choices. And that includes fulfilling how we fulfill our obligations to other people. Right? Can I, so, and one of the things about big government programs from a natural law perspective is that they tend to take away and reduce the opportunities for people to make free choices for the good. I also, I want to say that. And to be responsible agents and creative agents themselves. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. I want to say also that that reading of Proverbs is just a bad reading. That, that, that's, <laughs> it's not like you're not, young people reading the Proverbs and it's saying that there's an obligation from the rich to the poor and then applying that to everybody else and saying that, that this is now the rule for everybody else. Like if I were to go to the New Testament, I say, well, there's an obligation that people tie to the church. Let's just say that that's an obligation. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, this needs to be applied at a, at a governmental level. Everybody needs to tie to the church. Those same young Christians who are interpreting <laughs> Proverbs that way would be like, no, 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 no. Separation of church and state, that should never happen. So they're taking something that's meant to be personal wisdom and they're turning it into like government, a huge governmental policy. And that's just a terrible reading. You just, that's just bad interpretation. Yeah. In terms of drawing a straight line from the proverb to a big government solution, but drawing a line from the proverb to the general principle of that we have some obligation to the poor. You're not saying that's a bad reading. No, I'm saying you're saying it's going from there to the the solution for this is like communism. I'm saying or no, Nick. That's a Nick. Bad what reading. I'm saying is when you read it, you have a obligation to the poor, not we. When people like when you read the scriptures, I'm not reading it and saying, wow, man, this is great. This would be great for Nick and Sam. I got to send this to them because they need to know like like I'm reading it like God's mm -hmm. talking to me. Like if it's my responsibility, like if you read the scriptures as if it's all about everybody else, you're going to you're going to become like crazy. I think to some capacity, I just think it's just an arrogant, selfish yeah. interpretation. Okay, let me let me ask Sam another one of these and see if this can also elucidate it. OK, so in the Torah, the people of Israel come into Israel mm -hmm. and there is a large shared resource, which is the land. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And there's this assumption that in the in the, the generally free exchange economy that's assumed to exist, 
Um, some people will acquire more land. Some people will not acquire land. They'll end up selling it. They'll, some people actually become slaves. And there will, will be this developed inequality over the course of seven years and then in a wider horizon, 49 years, right? And so God institutes this year of Jubilee that like mm-hmm. every so often there'd be this like reset. So people who have lost their capacity to what Marx may have called the means of production, like the way of gaining wealth for yourself, could experience a reaccessing the materials by which one could access wealth for themselves. They would still be entering a a situation of they have to be creative, they have to be responsible, they have to be moral, but they get to access the thing that would access a living, so to speak, right? I've said, so let me say, I'm going to say, this is what I said for my pulpit, you tell me if I preached wrong. (laughs) So I said, in America, at one point, that probably would have been universal access to some piece of land. So you had the land rushes of the 1800s and so on. In today's economy, with the way things function now, at the relative wealth of our country, that's probably would be something like access to a certain level of education that we make sure everybody has access because that's how you get a living in our in our culture and economy. So giving everybody the the ability, we, we don't make them get educated, but everybody can access a certain level of education so as to attain a living. If they are responsible, they are hardworking and they pursue it responsibly that they can do it that nobody is there's there isn't a uncrossable gap for anybody to enter into a responsible living within our culture and that probably is something like education at least through high school and then maybe making access to maybe associate's level degree in a practical field accessible to everybody even if they pay for it well i think what you're what you're pointing to is when you look at when you look at something like the scriptures and what the scriptures say about the Jubilee, for example, the, the, the case that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. You, you have to, of course, one of the things we have to remember is we're talking about a highly agricultural society in mm-hmm. which there is very little wealth creation. It's basically a subsistence level economy, which was the norm in human history mm-hmm. up until right. around about the mid-18th century, right? So, so that's the norm. We don't live in that type of society. Most of us, the overwhelming majority of people, don't live mm-hmm. in that type of conditions, which, which is not just agricultural, but subsistence. We live in commercial societies, highly technological, highly industrialized societies, uh, and in which there is wealth that's being created all the time. So that's, the, so that's, but what you're pointing to is we have to think about what are the principles that we draw from scripture and thereby try and apply them in the current context. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe it's something like access to education or something like that. I mean, I, uh, there's all sorts of things that people have come up as a way of trying to, to model that. But I think the basic point is we should be very careful about extrapolating from the scriptures in a way that ignores the context in which those particular principles were articulated. Yes, we need to make sure that people have access to economic prosperity. We need to make sure of that. Um, but that does not involve land redistribution in the United States, right? It involves, yeah. we have to think in a better way about how this occurs. Right. And we have to be attentive to the economic conditions in which we're existing. And we also need to be aware that that sometimes well-intentioned policies can have some very negative effects, what economists mm-hmm. typically call unintended consequences. So, and it's, so, so it's something like access to education, right? Well, okay, if that means access to tertiary-level education, then, I, then one thing that you could end up happening is a lot of people going to college who really 
shouldn't be going because they're not mm-hmm. suited to it. It's not what they're interested in, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah. you start to have a lot of economic and political dysfunctionality mm-hmm. starting to emerge. I mean, this but is to what... Broadly speaking, the sort of principle, yeah. the framework you're outlining, I think is broad, broadly correct. This is to what just happened yeah, so last like, night. Like this, we're recording this podcast. Yeah, we were recording this podcast literally the day yeah. after the Supreme yeah. Court struck yeah. down yeah. affirmative action in colleges, right. right? And so affirmative action has like, it was created to create these positive ways in which minority people could get access to certain things. But then it ended up with these well, unintended externalities, people, right? Like right. Yale Yale and Harvard didn't increase the number of people that could be in their freshman classes, right? right? right. And right. so it wasn't actually ac- increasing access. It was keeping it narrow. And then so then they were disproportionately bringing in African-American students and so Asian students right. and other students right. who were highly qualified right. weren't getting in. But then there's also the issue of in places like Duke of every like 10 African-American young men who would come in in the sciences they would end up graduating with a studies degree like seven or eight of them because they couldn't do the math because they went to too good a school and so they were falling behind in the math they switched out of the sciences and so we ended up with fewer black engineers fewer black programmers fewer black people in those stem fields because they were struggling at duke when they would have been fine at michigan state and so it wasn't just that that some black men and women weren't graduating who were going to college and who were college material they were graduating in different fields that where we were trying to get equality in the other fields in terms of representation and also the income difference in those fields is very substantial. So the African-American boy, young man who goes to Duke and instead of getting an engineering degree, gets a studies degree. He not only is he, is there not another young African-American in the in engineering, but he's not making the engineering dollars when he gets out, which doesn't lead towards the economic equality that we're looking for. And all that is produced by, Affirmative action. I think plus. Other I things, think this points well. to Sam to Samuel's point, though that uh, th- that it's prudential. The questions are prudential. Well, no, 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 no. Not I, just I, philosophical in some capacity, but I think that it, it also points to that these these uh, good intended policies have unintended consequences. And I would argue, yeah. in a in a country of 350 million people, when you're trying to make policy that affects every single one of them for instance like land distribution or or schooling for every kid i just i do not think that that's something that like there will be millions of unintended consequences from that every single time you can't fix that and so for me i'm like i i look at when christians say this they look to proverbs or whatever and they're like oh we need to do something governmentally i think that it's just a d what they're doing is they're abstracting human beings out to this to this idea or this, this uh, ideal where if you just gave them this thing, everything would be fine. And therefore in that scenario, they can just pay their taxes and not think about it anymore because on it, that's what they want I to do at the end of the I th- day. I think, I think what's also really important though, to see what Greg is saying, what Sam is saying, sorry, Sam, Greg, I just keep saying your last name is your first name. What Sam is saying is also that just because the way you and I might think about this is we would normally apply this as a pro-Republican argument. Oh. It just as easily in another situation could be like a pro-Democrat argument. Like if if a certain thing in like a laissez-faire or like a cronyist economy like was was like moving in a direction that like that didn't ha- handle people's rights yeah, very well. Yeah, yeah. In theory, you could still say yeah. this thing that was yeah. intended to be the result of a free market right, or whatever right. that is that is gone gone yeah. corrupt in another way, you might still argue it. Right now, we might not say so. The result that what we should do for a solution is socialism. I mean, I, I don't think the, no. solu- the solution for cronyism is socialism. <laughs> I think the solution for both is freedom. But but at the same time, like you you could imagine going to India and using the same reasoning and not be making Republican American Republican arguments, right? Yeah, and you know, one thing I think is important to keep in mind here is that paying attention to context 
which natural law tells us we must do if we're going to be prudent, does not mean mm. um, that you've become a relativist, mm -hmm. right? We, we, we need to pay attention to the context in which we're operating, whether it's a first world developed economy context or the conditions of a developing African economy. The principles of natural law will take you a long way in terms of helping you to establish a framework for thinking through particular questions. It doesn't necessarily generate specific policy outcomes or, or even policy directions. What it does do is provide a framework which should ensure that whatever you end up doing, you do not do something that actively promotes directly and intentionally promotes some form of injustice. And that's pretty important, right? Because I think that um, as soon as a policy becomes intentionally unjust, then it's a, you have a deep problem. Hmm. And natural law, I think, tends to mitigate against people making that type of error. Yes. Okay. So that point means something like this. There are some policies that are are unjust in themselves towards human beings. And then there are others that produce injustices with human beings. And one you fix by understanding the natural law and knowing what is just wrong and you don't do them. And the second is a prudential question that has a lot more application and what's going yeah. to happen involved in it. And it's the second yeah, that's right. That's, that's, that's most of the theory. questions we're answering are in the second group. But I think you would say, Sam, that Natural law informs both. It informs the first in saying, like, you just can't do that. You can't commit adultery. You just can't do that, right? And the second one, when it comes to, well, how should we set up our economy? You'd say, okay, here are seven or eight very important natural law principles to take into account as you prudentially are working out what you're going to do. So natural law is still relevant to the second question. It just doesn't necessarily dictate what is done exactly. Can it, can it dictate? No, that's, 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 that's exactly right. So natural law is very good at making sure that you know what you shouldn't okay, do. Okay, that's what I was going to ask. Right? But then it provides you with this sort of fra a framework for thinking about how you, how you do positive things at, let's call it the political level, the economic level. But it's not going to tell you whether the minimum wage is going to be $5 or $10. It's not going to tell you those sorts of things because people can reasonably disagree about some of those things. And here's the other thing. Natural law doesn't shut down discussion about these types of questions. It doesn't shut down discussions about um, uh, the role of government in the economy. It certainly will tell you there are limits to what the government should do in the economy, very strong limits, but it won't tell you that um, the tax rate of 29% of is intrinsically better than a tax rate of 29.5%. Right. So these are, I think, the very important distinctions that nonetheless ensure that we're acting as justly as possible in light of what we know and given the conditions in which we place. Yeah. So one of yeah. the examples you gave before where, where natural law can allow for a really cataclysmic shift is with the, with the change of economy types, when wealth can be generated, all of a sudden interest goes from being usury by definition to being a means of investment. So so in, in the Christian tradition, Correct. both in the Catholic and Protestant worlds, we moved from in agrarian societies where all interest was usury because, because as the Swedes used to say, banking and farming don't mix, to entering an industrialized economy where it can be a real benefit to somebody, an act of love and help to give somebody a loan 
because they can then purchase and create wealth with that money, even though you're charging them interest because they can multiply their wealth and pay back only a percentage for using it. They can like, they can rent money and that is a good. So something that went from being an evil to being a good. And that dynamic was, was allowed because we're in some ways we were quote disobeying scripture when we decided that. And so we still believe there's such a thing as usury. When they, you go to a payday lender Absolutely. and the payday lender charges like 28% a day or something like that, we can recognize that as usury because the principle of the multipli- enabling the multiplication of wealth by, by um, debt being a good for the person being indebted versus being uh, making them a slave to us as the lender is a dynamic we could still understand even if the economic situation has significantly changed. And this is a good way. This is a, the usury case is a very good example of how uh, natural law under, helps our understanding of reality to develop. Because in the context of a static, subsistence agricultural society, there's no wealth creation. There's no surplus wealth, right? So by definition, when you're charging interest, you're charging interest on something that's that's not creating. Right. It's not. It's, it can't create anything. Right. right. It's just. It's just helping you to survive. So that's the first thing. But in the conditions of a of a capitalist economy, suddenly money has something a different context to it. Mm-hmm. Money is capital. Money is productive. Money has a capacity to be used in ways that multiplies wealth in bigger and better ways. So I have a just, I can justly charge interest on something because I'm giving up my use of something I could potentially use to create wealth for myself. So this is, it's really fascinating because this is exactly the argument that Thomas Aquinas made when he was talking about this issue. So he says, yes, there is usury. Usury is always evil. But not every act of charging interest is mm-hmm. usury. Hmm. So that's the distinction. The classic formulation is um, usury is charging interest on a loan without just title. And those three last words, without just title, are really important because it means that sometimes, in fact, in the conditions of a capitalist economy, there are lots of just titles for charging mm-hmm. interest. So the moral principle has not changed mm-hmm. What's changed is the way we understand money in the context of different economic situations, which in turn helps us to think through what are just and unjust actions of using money and charging interest of money in very different And I think one of the reasons this is so important is because when medieval Christians tried to stay faithful to scripture but did not understand natural law reasoning very well, they outlawed lending in most of Europe, which led Jews – to be the people who did most of the lending, which ended up creating Jews as like a secondary class of people who were capable, allowed to do this, quote, sin. And it actually fueled a lot of anti-Semitism as well as depressed the economies. And so like just misunderstanding just that one principle of natural law and embedding it in religious governments created a horrible externality that hurt the Jews and that hurt all of the European economies in Christendom. I think Sam would argue this, and I would certainly argue this too. In modern economies, we are making similar errors by not understanding the natural law and understanding how it should be working in economies by making them more free, allowing people to be more creative and responsible by using the subsidiary principles and so on. Yeah. I mean, a good example of this is I often run into people who say all charging of interest is usury and is therefore wrong. Today, we hear hear people say that. And I'm saying, actually, that, that doesn't reflect 
it, I don't think it actually reflects scripture's pro proper treatment of this of this particular issue, but I also don't think it reflects um, how Christians have worked their way through this very complex question over time and have arrived, I think, at some pretty clear and defensible explanations of what is usury and what is not usury and how literally the same, the person doing the same act can end up doing, can actually end up doing usury or not. It so much depends upon understanding what's actually going on with that particular action. Yeah. So can I, can I ask what are the biblical, I, and I don't have anything off the top of my head, but I, I grew up in a conservative evangelical family where Dave Ramsey was a big deal. And the idea that you were going to borrow money and have an interest rate, like it just feels immoral oh, to me. Dave like, Ramsey's like credit the perfect cards example and, of getting this right though, Andy. Right. So Dave Ramsey says there's but, only three reasons to go in debt, right? You're going to buy a house that you you believe will appreciate as a primary residence, right. right? You have an approved business plan or you're getting a degree that's very likely to produce income. So in all three of those cases, you have what, what Sam right. called just title. You have a reason to believe that the use of right. the money in this way will produce a multiplication of wealth so that A, you can do the justice of paying back the lender and B, it will be truly good for the borrower. That is that the borrowing and the lending is mutually beneficial and has no rent seeking that is somebody giving a service for which they don't they don't also provide right. they they are extracting a payment for which they don't provide a service mm -hmm. and that in christian theology is see, a fundamental yeah. evil economically any rent seeking where i i extract a payment without offering yeah. a just service is always wrong I can see how that can be reasonable. What I'm asking is, where, where, where is it biblical? Because when I look, I mean, when I think about scripture, maybe I'm wrong, but I, and I can't quote anything off the top of my head, but like borrowing and not, and like that just, I feel like the concept of borrowing and loaning is not actually biblical. So like, so we could make a reasonable argument for it and be like, yeah, of course this is fine. And then when I go to the Bible, it's like, don't do that. And I'm like, yeah. okay, well, what do well, I do? It's, you know, it's interesting. I wrote a little book called Forgotten Prophet and I spent a lot of time talking about um, how the Hebrew and Christian scriptures treated the issue of money lending. I can't recall the precise verses sure. right now, but here's the general gist. In the, Hebrew scriptures, um, the Jews are forbidden from lending to each other. Okay. But they're not forbidden from lending to people who are not Jewish. Hmm. They're not forbidden from taking loans from people who are Gentiles. So what does this tell us? What this tells us is that usury, uh, the charging interest in itself is not intrinsically evil because if it was intrinsically evil, would have, the scriptures would completely. just say no, yeah. no, no, sure. no lending yeah. whatsoever, period, no exceptions, mm -hmm. anything like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Then when you look at the, the Christian scriptures, not a lot is said about usury. Huh. I mean, at one point, of course, there's one parable where Christ talks about you know, to the to the the servant who just buries his yeah, money in the yeah, ground, right? Yeah. And what does Christ say? Well, you could have put it in a right. bank. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So it's not now. I, I don't. I don't. The the point that's being made in that scripture verse is is actually very little to do with money lending right. per se. It's much more about how we use our talents yeah. and whether yeah. we, we 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 use the seeds that have been planted within us to grow, etc. That's what it's really about. But. The fact that Christ uses that example of you could have put it in the bank and earned mm -hmm. interest. It right? says something about tells yeah. us that 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 tells us it it does reflect 
the Hebrew scriptures position that this is not some sort of absolute prohibition. Yeah, the assumption. Now, does the is- Hebrews position tell you that you shouldn't like you shouldn't do that with Christians and family, or is there That's something to that? It basically, I- it does talk about lending to the poor. It does say that you know when you you, you, you lending money to people and then extracting. Um, incredibly high interest rates beyond which they're capable of paying. Yeah. yeah. That's theft. Okay. Yeah. And even like there's even, even forbids um, taking collateral. So so like lending to somebody who's behind that's treated as a, a con a construction for charity, right? Like you should help that person and not let them fall further behind a person who wants to use your money so that they can get ahead. That person, it becomes just to loan to, but that's not the context in the Hebrew scriptures. And the Hebrew scriptures, when it talks about loaning and, and, and it has it in an evil light, it's an agrarian context in which your brother who lives near you because they're rela- it's, it's part of tribal relations, he's falling behind. So this other person's falling behind and now you lend to them. It becomes kind of like that sharecropper mentality where like, I'm going to use lending to make you my permanent slave. And God's like, you do not do that. That is not what I want you to do. Right. He, because he wants to see shared wealth in a free economy. He wants to see, you know, helping people out each other out in a neighborly and subsidiary way so that everybody can do okay in that subsistence. If somebody figures out how to get ahead, it's okay for that guy to multiply it so long as he's not doing it by extracting it from other people. Sure. And let's keep in mind also that the, the Hebrew scriptures are talking about societies where there is wealth is not being created, highly agricultural, highly subject, of course, to weather. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you have famine is a real thing. We don't live in that type of economy. Mm-hmm. So that means that the way we think about money is bound to Sam, change. when you say wealth isn't being created, you don't mean that literally, right? You just mean that the percentage increase in agrarian systems and the volatility of weather and things like that make it so like you can't you can't lend with the kinds of expectations of producing three hundred to ten thousand times the amount of wealth through industry, right? Yeah, it's also it also it's but it's really about the fact that in these types of societies, money functions primarily as a means of exchange. It's not primarily there as a source of capital in the way that okay. we would yeah, understand, understand something that, yeah. like capital today. Hmm. So there's a there's a big difference, right? Because and it was really in the medieval period, which is when economic growth starts to emerge in a more systematic way, that people suddenly discovered, wow, we've got all these resources that we can lend to people. We didn't have this 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Even, even quote-unquote, very wealthy people didn't have this because wealth was very much about land mm-hmm. and ownership of land. Mm-hmm. And we don't live in a land-based economy. We live in an economy that is capital-based, but also um, human resource mind-based. Mm-hmm. I think I – okay, so so we're almost an hour and 40 minutes into this, and I think we gotta we got to wrap up here. But yeah. – um, let, let's. Can I have another appointment in yeah. 15 minutes? Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. good. <laughs> uh, Sam, thank you so much for your time. You've given us so much time. You've been yeah. so generous. We appreciate oh, it so much. Yeah. Yeah, for and for people listening, if they're interested in in reading more uh, of what you've written or listening to to you more, where can they find you? Okay, so um, if you're interested in reading some of my books, I'd suggest that uh, basically just go to Amazon, type in my name, you'll find. A little book that I wrote on natural law called The Essential Natural Law, which is actually available free for download on Kindle, but you can also download it from the internet as well, which really, it's really designed to explain as in as simple terms as possible to people who have very little understanding of natural law, whether they're Christian or non-Christian for that matter, uh, what natural law is and what, how it applies. 
If you're looking for um, some of my work on economics, again, I simply just go to Amazon, type up my name, and you'll find a lot of things in there about economic history, about um, what's happening in the American economy mm -hmm. right now, where I think the American economy is going. And also, I'd, you know, look at um, my my where I'm listed at the American Institute for Economic Research, and you'll find there quite a big selection of different things I'm working on. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, I think yeah, that, yeah, yeah, we appreciate. But of course, it's Acton, 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 dot org. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, and the Essential Natural Law. It's like sixty pages, very short. And I read the first right. twenty pages or so of it. It's very readable. It's probably easier mm -hmm. to understand than listening to Sam today, because you have it right in front of you, and the sentence <laughs> structure is clear and simple yeah. and straightforward. I, I would recommend it, and mm -hmm. it's you can get it off the internet really easily. Cool. Cool. Well, Sam, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. This was a great conversation. Um, for those of you listening, make sure you like, subscribe, share this with your friends, give us a five-star rating, leave a review, and we'll see you guys in the next one. Goodbye. <laughs>